0: I'm Marcus Greatheart. And I'm David Ball. Welcome to the Addiction Practice Pod. This
1: is a podcast of the BC Centre on Substance Use about approaches to substance use care and
0: treatment. Recorded on the unceded traditional territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations, the reach of this work touches on all 198 First Nations in BC. I'm a physician, social worker, advocate, and mentor, specializing in addiction treatments, social justice and health care, and doctor-patient communication.
1: And I'm a journalist with a decade reporting on substance use, mental health, and public health policies. This is a podcast for healthcare providers focused on
0: issues in British Columbia. We'll hear from clinicians, policymakers, and people with lived experience on approaches to substance use care that work. Stimulants, including cocaine, methamphetamine, and other amphetamine-type substances, are among the most commonly used illicit psychoactive substances around the world. Although there is not much data on the prevalence of stimulant use in BC, a survey of individuals accessing harm reduction services in British Columbia found that methamphetamine was the most commonly used unregulated drug in 2021. It sounds like stimulant use
1: is quite common here. Is this causing harm to the extent we've seen with unregulated opioid use? And to what extent
0: are stimulants part of the unregulated drug poisoning crisis? It's a great question. Stimulants are increasingly detected in unregulated drug toxicity deaths and a rising concern for people in BC. There are a couple of reasons for this. First, co-occurring substance use, like using methamphetamine and opioids together, has become increasingly common. Second, Stimulants are sometimes contaminated with fentanyl and other highly potent opioid analogs such as carfentanil. Distinct from the issue of toxic drug poisonings, stimulant use can also cause significant harms of its own, including negative cardiac and mental health outcomes.
1: In this episode, we'll address approaches to harm reduction and treatment for stimulant use disorder, recognizing that co-occurring substance use and mental health disorders are common. And as usual, you can find the articles and resources we discussed during this episode in our show notes. Today, we want to bring you a couple different perspectives.
0: First, let's hear from someone with a lot of experience treating stimulant use disorders.
1: Here with us today, we're happy to have Dr. Julius Elefante. He's a clinical assistant professor at UBC and staff psychiatrist at St. Paul's Hospital. Julius, it's so great to have you with us today. We know that stimulant disorders are complex, and I wondered if you could walk us through some of the different factors that may contribute to someone developing a stimulant use disorder in the first place.
2: Thank you very much, David, for having me. It's a very complicated question. What leads for someone to have a substance use disorder, specifically a stimulant use disorder? There's so many different factors that are involved in that, perhaps reaching all the way back to early development perhaps there's some biological factors to that, some genetic factors that contribute to the propensity to developing a substance use disorder. And more than that, perhaps there's some early adverse childhood experiences that might contribute to somebody eventually developing a substance use disorder later on. And even more and more, we're recognizing that perhaps even before the developmental period, maybe intergenerational trauma might play a factor into substance use disorder. So it's such a complicated question. And then you layer into onto it the different populations that are affected by stimulant use. Say, for example, street youth, they might use stimulant, stimulants to increase their sense of safety when they're out sleeping on the streets. For men who have sex with men, perhaps it begins first as a social outlet. And perhaps it becomes part of their sexual milieu and it becomes hard to extricate themselves from it. So I, I think for different people, there's different factors at play. And another reason that I've heard with people who use opioids primarily is it might help them reduce the risk of overdose. So at least that there's the, that's the reason that they, they've given me is they nod off as less and then perhaps they might stay more awake while using.
1: It sounds like a lot of intersections between all of those different things. And interesting to hear you mention intergenerational trauma as, as well as other substance use disorders, mental health disorders, social factors. Can you talk a bit more about how you see them intersecting in your work? At work?
2: For my addition to practice, there's a couple of places where that takes place primarily. One is at the John Rudy Clinic, which is an HIV clinic that services mostly gay and bisexual men who have sex with men, but not solely. We also have people from all walks of life who access that clinic as long as they have HIV. And I also work at Redfish Healing Center. The commonality with these two places is most of my patients are treatment-seeking patients, for the most part, wanting to reduce or cease their stimulant use. It may be different from people who treat, say, for example, Dr. Greatheart, who might have a more broad population that he treats. In that setting, gay bisexual men who have sex with men, there's definitely that, that intersection between the trauma that they talk about, growing up being gay, growing up being bisexual, feeling like an other in terms of their identity. That might have contributed to their ongoing substance use. A common thread they talk about is perhaps they first learned about their identity, perhaps in settings for various drugs and alcohol, becomes their first initiation into the community, it becomes part of their social life, and later on, they might get introduced to stimulants in, in that setting and then have a hard time extricating themselves away from it. A common intersectional thread with, with that group as well. Um, To the general population, is there talk of trauma in their early life? Perhaps they might have had some emotional or physical abuse or sexual trauma that they might have experienced. Those are pretty common themes that my patients have talked to me about at the John Rudy Clinic who are men who have sex with men, as well as
0: people who are more from the general population. There's a great book by David Fawcett, Lust, Men, and Mess, where he posits his Thesis around how first he talks about development of stimulant use disorders, and then he talks about development of of sexual identity in in men who have sex with men, and then how those overlap and how those create this sort of unique knot of addiction and, and dependence with with stimulants.
1: Julius, you've mentioned a few times some of these sort of social and cultural contexts of stimulant use disorder, whether that's, you know, in sexualized stimulant use, in maybe more unstable or violent environments, in places where people, you know, have to watch out for their safety if they're street involved. Could you talk a little bit more about those? Like how, because that might help inform treatment, I imagine, if you're looking at actually the social context, like how much stimulation is in their environment, safety factors from their peer group, families, origin, that kind of thing.
2: Before I continue, I just also wanted to point out that since we're talking about treatment options anyhow, the BCSU has come out with a practice update on stimulant uses orders in June 2022, and it's available on the website. And a lot of what I'm talking about the, comes from that resource. I encourage people to, to take a look at that uh, resource. You bring out the issue of the importance of environment, and actually environment is hugely important. In the, the addiction work, we're, we're focused a little bit on the pharmacological treatments, but The non-pharmacological treatment psychosocial aspects are hugely important, including environment. In in particular, one of the more established treatments psychosocially for stimulant use disorders is something called community reinforcement. Community reinforcement treatments have to do more with those environmental factors. And the way they define community reinforcers is quite broad, actually. It includes family, friends, employment, hobbies, recreational activities, activities, undergoing community reinforcement treatments will look at improving the quality of those relationships, the quality of those environments. The idea is hopefully eventually the individual will find those reinforcers to be much more rewarding than the substance use itself in theory. And of course, we're not even touching the huge issue of homelessness. It's, It's just so hard to expect somebody to attain stability when somebody is unhoused, for instance. So what this means is we need to look at addiction treatment much more broadly, not just for stimulant use disorders, but for all addiction treatment. Is how do we address not just the biological components of addiction, but also the social
0: and environmental components of it. Julius, we, the treatment options that you've talked about so far in the psychosocial intervention realm, are there some pharmacological treatments for stimulant use disorders?
2: This is where every time I talk about pharmacological treatments, yeah, there's always this sense of deflation. Because if you look at the evidence base alone, there's been so many multiple studies and meta-analyses that unfortunately have not found much convincing efficacy for treatment, meaning for abstinence, for cessation. Right There, there hasn't been a lot of support for that. That said, there, there have been some promising studies of late. Medications such as ex- extended-release injectable naltrexone in combination with uh, bupropion. That was just described, in I believe, in the New England Journal um, back in 2019. The unfortunate thing is injectable naltrexone is not yet available in Canada, so hopefully it will be, and it can be something that we can try. There's also some research on mirtazapine, particularly with GBMSM and trans women. that It might reduce the use of stimulants an antidepressant, and nolotraxone is an opiate antagonist that people might use for opioid use disorders. And then there's a bit more of a promising systematic review that came out in 2020 that looked at psychostimulants in general for the treatment of stimulant use disorders. The author is uh, Tardelli, for anybody who's interested in looking at that study. What they were able to show is for people who have cocaine use disorders, If people were prescribed psychostimulants, they were more likely to have two to three weeks of sustained abstinence. So that in itself is promising.
0: Julius, can you talk about how you're incorporating the current knowledge of evidence around treating stimulant use disorder in your practice presently? Given the lack of
2: solid evidence, what do I do? A lot of it is in discussion with my patients. What are their goals? I try to work with them and collaborate with them to identify what their goals are. Are they wanting to stop their substance use or reduce their substance use? Are they perhaps not ready to do, to consider that, but they are experiencing a lot of harms from their substance use and want to reduce those harms? So for my clients who are wanting to seize their substance use, I might recommend pursuing psychosocial treatments that have more evidence base. So these would include treatments like contingency management and the matrix model. Just to describe them briefly, contingency management is a treatment modality based on behavioral psychology, where people are offered incentives and rewards for very specific ad- addiction-related goals. The idea is as you reward positive behaviors, so those behaviors become more entrenched and lead to recovery. And there is a robust evidence base around that treatment. Another available treatment that we have in Vancouver is a matrix model. The matrix model is basically a combination of different treatment modalities, which can include contingency management. It can include family therapy, individual counseling, 12-step related modalities, and cognitive behavioral therapy as well. So I might steer them towards that. For people who are experiencing stimulant-related harms, I may talk to them about risk mitigation as a possible option. With my Clients, though, it can be a bit tricky because most of my clients either already have had severe psychosis or are at risk for that. So take a very cautious and individualized approach to that. For my patients who have had severe psychosis to the point of injury, I might caution them about pursuing psychostimulant treatment. The idea is if they were to use my prescribed psychostimulants along with street stimulants, there's a risk for further harm. But I've learned over my years of practice, it, there's never an absolute no. It's always it's about trying to meet the patients where they are. And I've been surprised. I've had some patients who um, have been able to actually reduce their reliance on, on street stimulant when prescribed uh, the psycho the psychopharmacological alternatives. I've had patients who were able to reduce their reliance on street stimulants enough that their actual psychotic symptoms reduced. So that was a surprise to me. However, to be clear, these are the minority of cases. I think by and large, when I look at the people that have helped through the risk mitigation recommendations, unfortunately, many of them have not re- reported those kinds of results and many have said that they have either not helped or they, they're just not getting the effect that they're looking for with the pharmacological
0: alternatives. I would concur. I think at the beginning of COVID, when the risk mitigation guidelines came out, many of us were giving, were prescribing a lot of psychostimulants. And yeah, it is, it's truly a a small number of folks. Always a pleasant surprise. So I think for me, that means I'm willing to trial for a finite period of time and talk with patients about what success with that trial would mean and what sort of markers we're looking for.
2: And just to be clear, like I said, it's a handful of my clients that have described those kinds of benefits. And what you say is so important is defining the goals is so important at the outset. So we can circle back to those if those goals were not being met. Right? Because I think most of my clients are actually patients who are motivated for their own wellness. And if we had that conversation saying, look, we tried this short term trial and these are the results that have happened. And because of these, I really do not recommend that we continue. Most of my clients are are understanding of that.
1: It's really interesting you mentioned some of the environmental factors, because for people living in different contexts on the street, for instance, you can't generate necessarily a stable friend or a caring family member, for instance, if that hasn't been their experience. At the same time, people do have community wherever they are. Can you talk about how you would approach a harm reduction kind of framework in that context and finding out what resources or these kind of influence figures can be in any environment? For
2: the harm reduction context of the environment, I think this is where peer-led interventions really, really become more important. When we're talking about harm reduction, we speak about people who might not necessarily be wanting to cease or entirely reduce their substance use, but just want to be able to maintain their substance use in a safe manner. In, in these settings, the peers who have had lived experience are able to build remarkable trust with a lot of clients, and then they look out for each other. And a lot of uh, friendships that can come out of that as well, as my patients have talked about so sometimes the harm reduction community itself becomes part of that healing environment, and for some people, after having been connected to a harm reduction community, they might eventually consider treatment, which furthers them along in their uh, recovery.
1: And it sounds a bit like there's you can look for what are some of the stabilizing factors even within a very unstable context that people have the ability to find community or perhaps somebody in that in their milieu that they
2: could trust. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The trust is important. In the beginning, we were talking about what factors might lead to the development of a substance use disorder, And it's very well recognized that personal trauma in many different ways contribute to to substance use disorders. And one of the things that the trauma does is it also breaks a person's ability to form stable attachments, right? So part of the healing that
0: happens is being able to form those stable attachments again. I think some of the more more complex conversations I have with patients are around their uh, partners and friend circles when those circles and groups are involved in substance use and patients are wanting to make changes, whether it's a reduction or moving away or stopping using, that they have to reflect on those relationships. And to your point, how difficult it seems to be able to separate oneself from the folks who are have been major supports to them, but also recognizing that those relationships don't make it easier to reduce use or stop using.
2: That's a very interesting point. and. Reflecting on the experience that uh, patients who I've seen at John Woodley Clinic who are gay and bisexual men have sex with men, the friendships they have, I find by and large actually helps them along in recovering from their substance use, whether it's in reducing their substance use or eventually being able to seize their substance use. I've had a number of patients being brought to, to, to me by their friends, for instance, and they try to be there and be supportive. It's just remarkable how many friends would offer to be with their friends when they're in active psychosis, so they feel safer, for instance. And there was this research by uh, the BCCFE group that actually looked at some factors for improving substance use disorders among gay men. And I think social connection was one of the factors that they have seen that improves that the recovery.
1: It's interesting. It's basically like a view of someone's like well-being in their life that involves a whole bunch of factors, not just. Reducing or stopping substance use, but whatever goals the person has for meaningful connections, for belonging, for a lot of the kind of deeper needs that everyone has.
2: Mm-hmm. In, in some ways, this the substance itself has, has become a surrogate for those relationships, those environments and those attachments, right? And it's become the reward in itself. So part of the recovery is not just about the substance, but also beginning to heal from trauma and also the lack of attachment figures and forming new relationships, forming a new narrative for themselves.
1: That was Dr. Julius Elefante, clinical assistant professor at UBC and staff psychiatrist at St. Paul's Hospital. We also want to hear from someone with lived experience. Kat Kedja is the executive director and founder of Undo, which stands for Uniting Northern Drug Users Undoing Stigma. She is also an intergenerational survivor and a person with lived and living experience of substance use.
3: So, my name is Kat Cadu. I am the ED and founder of Undo. Undo stands for Uniting Northern Drug Users, Undoing Stigma. And we work and operate and learn and love on the traditional stolen and occupied territories of Claytley which is colonially known as Prince George, City. We're a group of people that come together with many dif- diverse. And different types of lived and living experience. One of our top things is the, art, the drug toxicity and people dying. So we do a lot of episodic overdose response and training. I wasn't born here, but I was raised here. Yeah, most of my addiction stems from here. And then I left to Vancouver, so I have also eight years of downtown side down there. For some reason, I always seem to come back here. I am a generational survivor. I was mostly raised by my grandparents, who one was a residential school survivor, one was a day school survivor. They both ended up here. My family was very messed up. Me and my mom are really heavy on breaking that cycle, but we also had to learn about it first in order to understand and be able to do that. But my addiction started quite young. I ended up in foster care when I was really young. I was molested. Then I started running away at quite a young age. I started doing heavy drugs when I was 13. I was drinking and smoking cigarettes and pot at 11. Started doing cocaine at 13, smoking crack. I was wired to heroin by the time I was 14. And that was my life for many years. I finally cleaned up for a few years, got on methadone, went to school, tried to start over, moved away like I said, I always seem to come back for some reason. My life has definitely been a struggle of up and downs. I got on Suboxone for a bit. And I, again, I had a few years of sobriety. I had a family. I fought for my family. I had to prove to the ministry that I'm wasn't this big bad person because I have an addiction history I ended up relapsing eventually and that's when I really like I never touched crystal meth I never really got heavy into crystal meth but I did when I relapsed just because there was not crack anymore it wasn't like it used to be and 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 I got used to the crystal meth it was obviously much cheaper my preference was speedballs. I loved mixing my down and up together and that's what we call the speedball. And so I got wired to the crystal meth quite heavy. I was doing quite a bit. That's also when I realized how toxic the drugs were and how different the fentanyl is compared to heroin, because I had a few years in of sobriety, right? My doctor also thinks. The only reason why I actually survived was because I was on the supplicate, the shot, prior. I was a huge advocate for Safe Supply. And I went to go get on Safe Supply. I'm like, I, I can't lose my kids to get my shit back together. And it was like, it was awful. Like, It didn't matter how much Safe Supply I did. Like, I was going through so much withdrawal. And, and it was um, my, my MP at the time, she did a urine test. And I lit up like a Christmas tree, everything. I didn't even know I was putting all this other stuff in my body, but it made sense to me because it didn't matter. Like I was so dope sick still, no matter how much safe supply I was using. And that's what made me understand. Like you actually go through withdrawal from crystal meth alone. Um, And how insane, how insanely similar crystal meth was withdrawal was to like an opiate withdrawal and the differences like I literally felt it coming out of my spine it felt like my back hurt so bad it's not it's not a nice feeling my crystal meth was a short it wasn't like I have 20 plus years with the crack cocaine and and the heroin crystal meth was a few months but it was enough to I you know to know how how easy it is to rely on crystal meth too. Like, I, I couldn't just go get my fentanyl and be okay. I needed to do both the fentanyl and the crystal meth for me to feel normal. Like, even the crystal meth like it's, is it's, it's tainted with like all these other additives to it so that you're not just doing crystal meth. There's no safe drug out there and you're not just coming off one thing. And I think that it's really important that people understand that too. Even if somebody's never done opiates before and they thought they were only using crystal meth, they'd, they'd be surprised. They're probably wired to fentanyl and benzos as well. I think honestly, it was having people with a will and a want to understand and listen and be able to work with me to identify what my needs were and see how we could help meet those needs so that I was able to get what I needed to keep going. And with like compassion and care too right if I didn't have that I probably wouldn't have continued to go back and say this isn't working this is my experience it's like maybe can we try this so not getting frustrated or irritated with that it's just really wanting to understand and a need to want to help meet those needs harm reduction is exactly that so it's not abstinence by any means harm reduction also falls into like not just like a safer substance but making sure that you are able to get housed or have somewhere safe to sleep and get some nutrition in you and have some type of compassion and care because without any of that you continue to harm yourself so is how can we reduce the harms in any way shape or form to meet your goals and your needs and I think that's the important key too is like identifying the person that you're working with, their goals, not mine, like what I think you should have, but meeting you where you're at. How can we do that? That's harm reduction. That first appointment is the most important. (laughs) Having somebody walk through those doors is a huge step and to be mindful of the whole environment and surrounding of of what's going on with you, your body language, your eye movements, your tone of your voice, and really trying to understand what brought them in there and what you can do for them. So I think that's the most important piece is really offering that compassionate care and trying to connect with them and building that relationship and trust because that is what's going to make everything. If you're saying something like if they're going there saying like hey i want to try this and i think this is going to work believe that <laughs> because they're probably staying that because they've tried it on the streets and that's why they're coming through those doors so that they don't have to go to the streets anymore they're actually wanting to do it a different way and work with somebody just really believing them and believing them if they're saying This is my withdrawal. This is how much I use. This is how much I feel I need to feel comfortable. If they're saying that, they're telling the truth. This whole drug seeking thing really needs to stop. It's so harmful.
1: That was Kat Kejia, executive director and founder of Uniting Northern Drug Users, Undoing Stigma. So to recap today's interviews, what are some of the clinical pearls you're taking away, Marcus?
0: To ensure that our approach to screening, treatment, and harm reduction is non-stigmatizing, we need to consider the social context that underlies stimulant use. For example, the factors that contribute to sexualized stimulant use. Also, psychosocial treatment is currently the standard of care for stimulant use disorder. Common treatment modalities for stimulant use disorder like contingency management and community reinforcement, involve reinforcing positive behavioral change and leveraging the support of family and friends during treatment. Currently, there's a lack of evidence for pharmacological interventions for stimulant use disorder. That said, there have been anecdotal reports of some patients who have experienced benefits from prescribed psychostimulants, including reduced reliance on or use of unregulated street stimulants. Clear communication with patients about the lack of available evidence and potential risks are very important if a pharmacological intervention is being considered. Unregulated stimulants are often contaminated with other substances, and co-occurring stimulant and other substance use is common. As a result, withdrawal and treatment can be complex, and individuals may not be aware of all of the substances they've been exposed to. Education about harm reduction is always important. Strategies for reducing harms from stimulant use include not using alone, ensuring adequate sleep, nutrition, and hydration, and because we frequently find opioids mixed in with illicit stimulants, ensuring you have naloxone available. And finally, it's essential that clinicians listen to the needs and goals of patients to work together to decide the best course of treatment while providing stigma-free and compassionate care. Thank you to our guests today, Kat Kedje and Dr. Julius Elefante. We've included the BC Center on Substance Use Stimulant Use Disorder Practice Update published in 2022, along with some relevant articles and resources in the show notes. Here, you can also find instructions on claiming your CME self-learning credits.
1: Help us to create the best possible podcast by filling out our short survey. Just click the link to it in our show notes.
0: This has been a production of the BC Centre on Substance Use.
1: And this podcast has been made possible through a financial contribution from Doctors of BC, with support from BC's Ministry of Health and Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions, with founding support from Health Canada. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of those organizations. I'm Marcus Greatheart. And I'm David Ball. Thank you so much for listening.